Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets, the show that keeps you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin. Today, I have a read-through of the ECB's recent annual report. Uh, I thought this was important because, or applicable to Bitcoin, because uh, it has a big section on CBDCs. And so this is their annual report, very important publication by them. And they're talking about CBDCs and quote unquote cryptocurrency. Plus, you know, we can really get a understanding of how they view money or their understanding of money, uh, what money is, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this whole podcast is about learning. I learn by doing it and I hope you guys learn as well. Now, if that is the case and you guys want to support my content, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and become a paid member. You get a extra member newsletter every week. And also that is supporting this podcast, uh, my FedWatch podcast that I do with Bitcoin Magazine, my free weekly newsletter, and my community that I'm trying to build over there on Discord. So um, all good things that you guys are supporting by becoming a paid member over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. That is also where you'll find the show notes to this episode. Okay, let's get into the ECB's annual report. Now, I bet that you will not find another podcast that will go through an annual report from a central bank like this, but I am going to the source, right to the horse's mouth. Uh, you know, I question all of the narratives. I'm very skeptical of everything. I try to think for myself and uh, pull out the useful bits. So yeah, let's just get right into this this report. Um, it starts out with a forward by Christine Lagarde. <clears throat> she is president of the ECB. And just a little side note, uh, also in the show notes, I'll include a link to this New York Times piece. But this was from back in 2016 when she was still at the IMF. Okay. Christine Lagarde, the head of the International Monetary Fund, has been found guilty of criminal charges linked to the misuse of public funds dating to her time as France's finance minister. She will not serve jail time or have to pay a fine. Uh, so then she left the IMF quickly after this. And of course they were like, hey, who else better to run the ECB, the second most important central bank in the world, but a convicted financial felon. Okay, that's who runs the ECB. Anyways, um, okay, let's go into their main findings. So the, the kind of sections of this annual report are, is that forward, then the main findings where they kind of summarize this stuff. And is, they have really cool charts in here, guys, and tables. So uh, if <laughs> I recommend going and reading this on your own. In this main findings section, you know, they have some good charts and good tables. So go and check out the report for yourself. Then they get they have these three special features. One of them is about invoicing, European invoicing. The other one is, of course, the CBDC thing that we're going to be going over. And the, the other one is the, a policy response or a, I guess, evaluation of their policy response to COVID. So some interesting things if you want to read through that. But we will be 
focusing on the second feature where they talk about CBDCs. Just to walk through some of their main findings, I think this gets us in the mood of what they're thinking. So the very first opening sentence of their main findings is as follows. The international role of the euro remained broadly stable in 2020. Now, <laughs> that is contradicted by other parts of their findings. Moving down to the second paragraph, we have, quote, the share of the euro across various indicators of international currency use was close to historical lows, averaging around 19%. The euro remained unchallenged as the second most important currency in the international monetary system. So I just want that to sink in that the euro is close to historical lows at 19%. But I don't know how they can come to the conclusion that it's been broadly stable when it's at historical lows. And let's just go through some of these other things they point out. Um, I'm just going to read a few of these highlights. So the share of the euro in global foreign exchange reserves decreased by 0.7%. So almost 1% during 2020, which is a pretty fast pace, if you ask me. Um, it says survey evidence suggests that low or negative interest rates are a concern among official reserve managers globally. So yeah, there's negative rates in euro denominated bonds. And so, you know, people don't want to hold those. Moving down, the share of the euro in foreign currency denominated debt issuance decreased by around two percentage points. In 2020, the share of the euro in international deposits declined by 3% over the review period, whereas deposits in the U.S. dollar increased sizably. Cumulative net shipments of euro banknotes to destinations outside the euro area declined by 2 percentage points. The share of the euro in the stock of international loans by banks outside of the euro area to non-euro area borrowers remained broadly stable, decreasing marginally by 0.1%. So, so far, everything is decreasing for the euro. The share of the euro has, as an invoicing currency for extra euro area imports of goods remained unchanged relative to last year. So, this one thing, invoicing currency for extra euro area imports of goods. Very like niche data here. I mean, they had to, I, I mean, it's obviously something they measure, but uh, it's like they had to dig for something that's unchanged, right? Let's continue. The share of the Euro in the stock of international debt securities declined slightly by 0.2%. Uh, so everything's declined yet. Their very first sentence of their main findings is that, the international role of the euro remained broadly stable for 2020. I mean, it's just a complete misdirection because if you read anything into it, you find out that the euro is declining relative to everything else. All right, let's let's read a couple paragraphs here and talk about what they're talking talk about what they're saying. At the Euro Summit on 25 March 2021, leaders of euro area countries stressed that they support strengthening the international role of the euro with a view to enhancing our strategic autonomy in economic and financial matters while preserving an open economy, contributing to the stability of the global financial system, and supporting European businesses and households, end quote. 
The relative resilience of the global appeal of the euro described in this report is noteworthy given the scale of the pandemic shock. It contrasts with earlier major crises episodes, crisis episodes, such as the euro area sovereign debt crisis, which was associated with a marked decline in the global attractiveness of the euro. So my point here that I want to bring up is that the relative resilience of the global appeal of the euro is noteworthy given the scale of the pandemic shock. So why? You would think in the pandemic shock, people would be rushing to cash, right? People would be fleeing to safety. And you would expect the global appeal of the euro to be relatively stable if it's a good currency. Like, why is that noteworthy? I don't understand why that's noteworthy. It should be just, you know, given. Um, they also point out that it contrasts to earlier major crises, such as the euro area sovereign debt crisis. Now, this that that's apples and oranges because the global crisis is different than a regional euro area crisis right obviously when you're having a a euro specific crisis the euro is going to be less attractive than if you have a global crisis then you're not going to have like specific um bias against the euro i hope that makes sense like this is just apples and oranges i don't know why they include that in here. Okay, let's continue. At the same time, the stability of the share of the euro across various indicators of international currency use, currently well below that levels that prevailed before the global financial crisis, suggests that only further resolute policy measures and reform efforts would enable the euro to realize its global potential. Oh boy. So here's the apples and oranges coming back in. They say, currently well below levels that prevailed before the global financial crisis. So that should have been what they're comparing to, because here they talk about global financial crisis, where earlier in the paragraph, they're talking about the euro area sovereign debt crisis. So um, they're, they're mixing apples and oranges here. But um, again, it's at historic lows. Well below where it was 12 years ago. That should be noted. That <laughs> it's declining in use and relative share of the global financial system. And then it's, <laughs> they come to a conclusion. I don't know how they connect these dots, but they say this suggests that further resolute policy measures and reform efforts would enable the Euro to realize its global potential. Oh man. That means that they think the only way, like they need to centrally plan better. Let's do more resolute policy measures and reform efforts. Let's really get in there and intervene in the marketplace. Let's really t try to tweak our currency. Let's try to tweak the regulations and tweak the rules. Uh, let, let's really try to manipulate things so that the euro will realize its global potential. Like that to me is just saying why it hasn't done that. And if you compare, um, I mean, getting into the CBDC thing <laughs> a little bit here. The Fed has, or yeah, the Fed has been one of the least, pretty much the least infatuated with CBDCs, where the ECB is one of the most infatuated with it, right? The ECB is trying to manipulate and tweak and tinker. That's a, a route to disaster. That's one reason why I would look at the ECB and, or look at the euro and be like, okay, the risk of holding this euro the risk of it getting tinkered with and destroyed 
is higher than the risk of the Fed tinkering with the dollar and changing things. I mean, this is one of the big lines of thought in Bitcoin is that you don't want to tinker with the money, right? You create this, you, you have a good working monetary tool and you let it be. And you take it out of control of any central planners. That's what decentralization takes Bitcoin out of the control of the tinkerers. But they think, hey, we need more manipulation of our currency. And that will make the euro realize its global potential. It just is crazy to me. All right, let's continue. Therefore, the policy implications that the euro system has stressed in the past remain fully valid. What? So there are historic lows of percentage or market share of the global financial system. They're going down by percentage points every year. When people should be fleeing to safety and fleeing to cash. Yet they say that the policies that they have stressed so far remain fully valid. Like you're going to double down on stupid. The international role of the euro is primarily supported by a deeper and more complete economic and monetary union, including advancing the capital markets union in the context of the pursuit of sound economic policies in the euro area. The euro system supports these policies and emphasizes the need for further efforts to complete the EMU. So we need closer integration, more centralized control. Come on, we need, we need more control. And they think that the market is succeeding or has succeeded as much as it has due to the central planning when it's actually the opposite. It has uh, survived despite the central planning. Government intervention, central bank regulator intervention, whether it's a central bank or uh, some sort of government, is counterproductive. Anyway, they just don't, un they just don't get it. All right, so then they talk about their special features, and we're going to get right into the central bank digital currency. This is section B, central bank digital currency and global currencies by Massimo Ferrari and Arnaud Mel. The report on the digital euro set out several scenarios in which the need to issue a digital euro may become important. For example, in the event that the use of cash in the euro area declined significantly in order to provide access to central bank money in an increasingly digital economy, or if foreign digital money were to largely displace existing domestic currency means of payment. So that second part is what they're concerned about. So they said that there's multiple scenarios that there might be a need to issue a digital euro. And one of them that they highlight here is if a foreign digital money were to largely displace the euro, that is what I think they're worried about. They're worried about losing market share, continuing to go to more historic lows, become less and less of an important currency. And right now we see, and I've mentioned this many times, um, digital dollars in the form of tether, you know, or stable coins, whatever, there's hundred billion out there. But there's almost zero of a digital euro in the private market. Why? Because money is convergent, right? And they think, oh my God, this is an example of what's going to happen in the future if this becomes 
like a digital dollar becomes ubiquitous, the euro is going to lose any role. And then we'll have no way to tweak our monetary policy. You know, we'll have no way to control our own spending and all this stuff. So they're really worried about that. Of course, they should be worried about Bitcoin. And <laughs> they say here, foreign digital money. So that could be, I guess, anything like a digital dollar. It, in my mind, it would include uh, Bitcoin. Um, it would include things like DM, which is that Facebook token. I don't know if that's even going to come about now. But, um, you know, that was one of the things that really kicked off this whole worry about CBDCs. So anyway, let's continue. Fostering the international role of the euro is not a prime motivation for issuing a digital euro. What? They contradict that statement many times within this report, by the way. However, if the use of a digital euro in cross-border payments were allowed, a decision that remains to be taken, this would also have implications for the international role of the euro. Against this background, this special feature examines how issuance of a central bank digital currency could impact the international role of currencies. It stresses that the global appeal of currencies depends on fundamental economic forces which digitization digitization is unlikely to alter. So I think the use of the word appeal here is interesting. They money is not based on appeal. It is a tool. Uh, it's based on how well it functions in its role, right? And um so appeal is a weird word here. For for example, like if I have a hammer and it has a defective handle, I'm probably not going to use that hammer. Like I use it once and on a first swing it breaks. You know, I'm going to buy a different hammer. I'm going to use a different tool that is similar. It's it's also a hammer, but it's a different hammer from a different company, a different brand, just like a euro or a dollar. So if the euro isn't working for me, I'm going to use a different tool. And digitization makes that like they say that is that makes it unlikely to alter that no way no way i mean first off most money is digital today um and why is that because it gives it different fundamental economic forces um different characteristics that uh, this money can be sent you know um over a communications channel and one of the things that bitcoin did obviously is separate the ability to send money over communications channel from a central issue or from a central party or a trusted third party, what Satoshi said. Um, no, digitization alters it fundamentally, fundamentally. And a CBDC is fundamentally different than digital money today. So digital money today is a debt. It's credit-based money. CBDCs are not, right? They're actual tokens. So they are fundamentally different form of money. And that is very important to understand, which I don't think the ECB understands. Um, okay, continuing. However, features specific to digital means of payment, including safety, low transaction costs, and bundling effects, could ease international adoption of a currency. They start using this term means of payment in here. And I want to make sure that people, listeners to this, uh, this podcast, know that means of payment is not medium of exchange. So money is supposed to be a medium of exchange. And in the Bitcoin dictionary, I 
I coin a new term and I call it um, the economic medium. So this is a tool or, or a good that provides an economic medium. But what they're trying to say is that a medium of exchange is a means of payment, which is not. The kind of analogies here is a means of payment is like Visa or PayPal. And a medium of exchange is like the dollar or Bitcoin. No one would confuse PayPal with the dollar, right? So when they use means of payment, it, it, you, you got to think that they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, anyone that's conflating these two things, they're either ignorant, like dangerously ignorant, especially if they're working at the ECB, or they're malicious. And I, <laughs> I, I think it's actually the first, to be honest with you. I think they're dangerously ignorant um, because they use it constantly throughout this piece. Because they'll say means of payment and store value, which obviously those are functions of money or they're using it as a function of money when that it's, means of payment is not a function of money. You know, medium of exchange is a function of money. PayPal is not a function of money. PayPal is not a function of the dollar or the euro. PayPal is a means of payment. Okay, let's continue before I lose my mind. These features may combine to create positive feedback loops in the use of a currency as a means of payment, oh God, and as a store of value and have effects on its global appeal. Uh, so let's just leave the means of payment here for a second. Um, and the use of the word appeal. I mean, th these sentences are so bad. Uh, okay, so features may combine to create positive feedback loops. No, features have trade-offs, okay? so. When you are talking about um, in Bitcoin, quick post-production edit here, guys. I didn't do a good job of explaining this. So fe features have trade-offs. They're not additive. Uh, the way it works in Bitcoin is Bitcoin couldn't just be a distributed software. Uh, it had to have a distributed consensus for double spending and other things. And that required a blockchain and it required different types of transactions. And so, um, you know, there was a trade-off there. You had to add those, but you couldn't add too, many, too much because it becomes onerous on the nodes uh, and there will be fewer nodes and it will hurt the decentralization. And so there's trade-offs. For example, like Visa has tens of thousands of transactions per second, but Bitcoin can never do that on chain, right? It's limited to, I think, between seven and 10 right now uh, with Taproot, I think. That might expand a little bit, but um, so yeah, there's there's limitations built into Bitcoin because there are trade-offs for these things. That's why Bitcoin in it is open source and permissionless, and anybody can build a service on top of it. Um, so while Bitcoin itself can't do these things, uh, you can build a Lightning Network, or you can build another layer too that enables more transactions, um, enables you to use this tool in a new way. Um, but every, you know, base level feature has a trade-off. Uh, adding new features is not additive. Since there are trade-offs, adding features are actually a negative feedback loop. They're not a positive feedback loop. So it's exactly opposite of what they're saying here. Okay, let's continue. I don't want this to be too long. Moreover, the specific design features of a CBDC would be important for its global outreach 
and ultimately the international role of the currency in which it is denominated. Design features could influence the ability and incentives of non-residents to use the CBDC as a means of payment, unit of account, and or store of value. See right there, means of payment, unit of account, and store of value. Those are functions of money, or it's meant to be functions of money. But means of payment is not a function of money. Medium of exchange is. PayPal is not a function of the dollar. Give me a break, people. The special feature presents model simulations by ECB staff using a new structural mac macroeconomic model, which allows the effect of the different economic mechanisms at play to be quantified. The simulations suggest that a CBDC supports the use of a currency in cross-border payments, but is not necessarily a game changer. As noted already, fundamental forces, such as the stability of economic fundamentals and size, remain the most important factors for international currency status. Yes, they're building this great new economic model to test their CBDC, but this is like the fatal conceit of central bankers or central planners. They think that the economy can be modeled. It really can't be. Okay, It is infinitely complex. And the more you try to observe it, the more it moves away. It's like the, um, you know, observation creates a different reality. And so if you are trying to observe the economy and measure the things that it actually changes the economy, right? And so it's infinitely complex. You can't measure it and you can't model it. You can only understand it from a philosophical perspective. And that is what praxeology is. And that is what the Austrian school does is it models it through philosophical proofs instead of like um, mathematical proofs. Uh, next thing they get into is, oh, it's not a game changer. The fundamental forces such as stability of the economic fundamentals and size remain the most important factors for international currency status. Yes, and this is just, I would say it's another way to say money is convergent. Okay, the more people that use the money, the better it functions for those people. As a pricing mechanism, as a, you know, liquidity increases, so you, the ability to store value increases, um, yada, yada, yada. This is just a different way to say convergent money. Okay, moving on here. Why a CBDC matters for international currency status. The global appeal of a currency depends on fundamental economic forces, which digitization is unlikely to alter. Okay, so they're pulling that sentence out and talking about it a little bit more. Okay, let's continue. Low transaction costs are another feature. Hmm. A CBDC would have the potential to widen access to payment services, promote financial inclusions, inclusion, and lower markups of traditional intermediaries. If made interoperable with non-domestic payment systems, it could contribute to filling gaps or correcting inefficiencies in cross-currency payment infrastructures, including for transactions or sorry, including for transfers of remittances. Now, these inefficiencies that they're talking about are due to the regulation. The reason why these things aren't interoperable is because of the regulation. Right? And like I said, transactions are trivial. They can You can do this easily with a central party. It's not like you're you know, making some great new invention. They can already do this. And they bring up their 
real quick in passing about financial inclusion. And that's a fairly big topic in Bitcoin, so I'll just touch on it real quick. I have a contrary, contrarian opinion on this as well, and that is that I don't promote financial inclusion. I think it's fine. Obviously, it's good if it happens, and it's fine to promote it or provide a service for financial inclusion. Um, it's seen as being like an indisputable moral good. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, you know, uh, it, I think it has the same problem set as all central planning, and that is that the central planners think they know what's best, and they think they know how best to implement what is best. And so uh, obviously they don't because the market is infinitely complex, and uh, the market is going to be smarter than you are um, at all times. So I don't know if that is a good... I, I promote more self-inclusion, um, you know, financial self-inclusion versus financial inclusion for financial inclusion's sake. Um, it's, it's a very nuanced thing. Maybe I'll do a whole episode on just this idea, you know, like a 10 minute real quick rant about financial inclusion. Um, but if you guys have questions on this particularly, cause it probably will bring up a few questions. Um, then you can obviously reach out on my DMS on Twitter, uh, on discord or below this episode on Bitcoin and There is a discuss thread that you can put your questions in there. So anyways, um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that about financial inclusion, and uh, I might take that part out. We'll see. All right, let's continue going. Lastly, programmability and bundling effects are other features specific to many digital means of payment. Means of payment. Bundling effects are related to the fact that they can be bundled with complementary services, giving rise to economies of scope and convenience benefits. For example, it has been suggested that a CBDC would facilitate the digitization of information exchanges in payments through e-invoices, e-receipts, e-identity, and e-signature, allowing intermediaries to offer services with higher value added and technological content at lower costs. Um, we can already do this. This is already possible. I don't know why we need a CBDC. The, like, the big hurdle to this is government regulation. You know? That is the big hurdle to all these means of payment things. And different facilitating these different di information exchanges or these different abilities, these different features. It all comes down to it's already forbidden. Right? And the only reason why the CBDC would allow or would be would enable that is because it's not beholden to the regulations that other people are so it's it's a it's not a technological problem it's a regulation problem and i've said that for a long time that most of these problems that people are trying to solve with this stuff are regulatory problems they're not technical problems i think we get into the programmability here in a second and i'll talk more about that so let's continue it could also benefit end users by giving rise to products that would compete with those offered by big tech firms. The specific features may combine to amplify positive feedback loops in the use of CBDCs as a means of payment and as a store of value. Recent research suggests that a currency's role as an invoicing or payment unit acts as a complement to its role as a store of value, <laughs> resulting in positive feedback loops. 
<laughs> Recent research suggests that being money complements store value or store value complements being money. Of course, these are, these are the same thing. Uh, invoicing or payment unit. Now, now here they say payment unit instead of means of payment because a payment unit is money, right? <laughs> so of course, money is also a store of value. So of course, being a payment unit is complementary to being a store of value. Like you need to research for this? Jesus. Okay. For, for instance, a large share of internationally traded goods is invoiced in U.S. dollars. And therefore, demand for U.S. dollar deposits is also strong. Okay, this is backwards. Let me read that one more time. For instance, a large share of internationally traded goods is invoiced in U.S. dollars. And therefore, demand for U.S. dollar deposits is also strong. You see why this is backwards? It's the demand for the dollar that creates the demand for invoicing. It's not the demand for invoicing that creates demand for dollars. So this is exactly backwards. And that's very important to understand. And I wonder, this must be an oversight, but... Okay, since global demand for safe U.S. dollar-denominated claims is strong, firms have an incentive to borrow in dollars. Okay, there you go. So demand for um, U.S. dollars is strong. And so that creates an incentive to borrow in dollars because it's stable and it's liquid. In turn, this encourages firms to continue to invoice trade in that currency. There you go. So now the invoicing is following the demand for the currency, which is the opposite of what they said in the first half. Uh, because doing so increases certainty about their future revenues in U.S. dollars, which can be used to pay back debts. A CBDC could affect this feedback loop in two ways. First, low transaction costs and bundling effects could increase its appeal for invoicing cross-border transactions as a means of payment and as a unit to settle current transactions. So there they distinguish between a means of payment and a unit to settle current transactions. In other words, this could increase the pool of retail trade transactions in goods and services that take place that can take place digitally across borders and facilitate an expansion of global e-commerce. Second, the safety of the digital euro could increase its appeal as a store of value and as a unit to settle future claims and transactions, as stressed above, as units held in digital wallets in view of future purchases of goods and services across borders. I think they mean in lieu of. Here, they're, they're doing a good job, you know, really calling it a unit to settle. That is what money is. Uh, so this is probably written by a different person. Because, uh, you know, these two people wrote this. So I wonder if this part was written by one and the person that continues to use means of payment to mean medium of exchange is writing the other sections. Okay, I can go with this. Complementarities between the CBDC's role as a payment unit and as a store value could be significant. And the resulting effect on the global appeal of the currency in which it is denominated would be stronger. Yeah, of course. Payment unit and store value. That's money. That describes money. Of course, there's going to be complementarities. I don't even know that word. Complements between these two things. Of course, because that is the role of money. That's a function of money. A payment unit and a store value. <laughs> That's exactly what money is. Let's continue. 
The availability of a CBDC would facilitate currency substitution in third countries with instable currencies and weak fundamentals. It might facilitate digital dollarization in such countries, leading to the full or partial replacement of their currencies with the CBDC for local payments as a savings vehicle and ultimately as the unit of account. This would strengthen the global status of the currency in which the CBDC is denominated, but would also reduce monetary policy autonomy in the country's, or sorry, in the economy's concern. So this is an exact worry of the ECB. That they are worried of the dollarization pushing out their ability to have effective monetary policy or autonomous monetary policy. Um, yeah, that's what they're worried about. Let's continue. Finally, attention should be paid to the risks to stability that might arise if a central bank does not offer a digital currency. One concern could be a situation in which domestic and cross-border payments are denominated by non-domestic providers, including foreign tech giants, potentially offering artificial currencies in the future. I like how they use artificial here instead of virtual. That's what they always used to say, virtual currencies, but now they say artificial currencies. Not only could this threaten the stability of the financial system, but individuals and merchants alike would be vulnerable to a small number of dominant players with strong market power. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, this, this is what they're concerned about. They're worried about losing market share to other currencies. You can kind of feel their uneasiness here. But it's not necessarily these tech giants. It's dollars and Bitcoin are the two things, not these uh, foreign tech giants. There is literally nothing launched at all. This only Facebook has talked about it, but they still have yet to launch anything. So that remains to be seen. But they are worried about digital dollars, which again are at 100 billion, over 100 billion in uh, circulation. And Bitcoin, which is, has broken a trillion. That's who they're worried about. Like they're worried about a small number of dominant providers with strong market power. Well, what are the central banks? I mean, <laughs> they're a monopoly. They have dominant power. So they're worried about being the people, individuals and merchants being vulnerable to a small number of dominant providers. But that's exactly what the central banks are. Right? They want the individuals and the merchants to be vulnerable to the central bank. Because right here in the next section, continuing the sentence, and the ability of central banks to fulfill their monetary policy mandate and role as lender of last resort would be affected. So they are worried about giving up that dominant power, that strong market power, from the central banks to the alternatives. Okay, let's continue going down. All right, so this is talking about some alternative design choices. Implications of alternative design choices for a CBDC. The specific design features of a CBDC would have implications for its global outreach and ultimately the international role of the currency in which it is denominated by influencing the ability and incentives of non-residents to use it as a means of payment, unit of account, and or store value. <laughs> Once again, means of payment, man. Come on. Let's go back to the first guy writing. These features include 1. Interoperability 
of the CBDC with non-domestic payment systems. Two, anonymity of users. Three, potential restrictions on use by non-residents. Four, the CBDC's remuneration. And five, the underlying transfer settlement mechanism, including modularities for offline payments. So I have a, <laughs> I have a lot on this. Uh, let's see. They're going to go through these individual design choices, and then we'll talk about each one individually. I, I think that'll work best. So design choices related to interoperability with non-domestic payment systems are likely to have a significant impact on a CBDC's global outreach. A CBDC could be designed to interoperate and facilitate cross-border and cross-currency payments. So interoperability is a noble goal. So what that means is just it works with different things. So like the digital dollar could work with the digital euro, right? Or the JP Morgan could deal with digital euros and digital dollars in a very seamless fashion. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a noble goal, but they don't really want that. Central banks don't want interoperability. It opens up the door to easy speculative attacks and convergence. We've talked about this many times in Bitcoin. You know, like it's a monetary competition. Which is the better store of value? Which is the better pricing currency? And the better pricing currency, the better monetary tool will get more people to hold it and will become more dominant. And so if you are being interoperable, you're opening yourself up to competition and people not holding the digital euro, instead holding the digital dollar. So they don't really want interoperability. I mean, that's the whole reason behind legal tender laws is because you want to restrict competition. You want to restrain convergence of money. And interoperability opens the door to convergence. So you, you really don't want this. And I think the ECB will quickly learn that they don't even want this. So, the, I mean, obviously they're really early in their understanding process. Some of this stuff in here is decent. Like they're starting to learn about money and Bitcoin or what, how Bitcoin has changed money. So they're starting to learn that. But this shows me they're not quite there yet um, because interoperability is a negative unless you are open to competition, which Bitcoin is. And that's why Bitcoin is open to interoperability because it welcomes the competition. It is the best store of value. It is the best monetary tool. And it welcomes that competition with open arms. Bring it on. All right, let's go on to the next one. They just talk about uh, interoperability here quite a bit. Okay, next part. Trade-offs between the benefits and costs of anonymity would have further implications for the global outreach of the currency in which a CBDC is denominated. Anonymity would bring benefits to users who value privacy and customer protection. It would help to save on the costs of obtaining the identities of users through potential third-party infrastructure providers, such as internet providers. If anonymity were embedded in a security token, for instance, a smart card, this would make the use of a CBDC closer to that of a traditional banknote. In turn, anonymity might help increase the attractiveness of the CBDC to non-residents. Taking the euro as an example, a large share of euro banknotes 
which are an anonymous means of payment, circulate outside the euro area. On the other hand, anonymity would prevent the identity of users being verified, thereby preventing its use being restricted to legitimate policy objectives. For instance, anonymity would have to be balanced against the need to restrict cross-border flows to prevent large and volatile investment flows into the CBDC or to build safeguards against its misuse for the financing of terrorism, money laundering, and other cross-border criminal activities by non-residents. Transparency or selective privacy would enable better compliance and know-your-customer checks to be implemented, thereby controlling illicit, illicit payment flows, for instance, for large transactions. These safeguards would strengthen the reputation and credibility of the digital euro. Oh, brother. So bottom line for anonymity is they can't provide it. They simply cannot provide it, period. There is no reason to even discuss it because they cannot provide it. It undermines their central planning. It is contrary to their central planning. However, they know that it is important, right? They know that it is an important feature in money and that they have to give it lip service. So they have to say, um, they, they have to say anonymity is necessary and important <laughs> at the same time, knowing that the anonymity is impossible for them to give. It is a mental knot that they have to try to untie. There will always be a differential between the anonymity and privacy available with Bitcoin and that available with CBDCs. Therefore, there will always be, at the very minimum, a market niche for Bitcoin. When you add to that convergence, it starts to become apparent that these limitations on a central planner are fatal. So <laughs> I was just reading my notes there. Um, yeah, so there's always going to be the ability in Bitcoin to mix your coins, to be more anonymous, right? Um, even use open dimes. So physical Bitcoins on a stick, you can do that kind of thing. So th there is ways to get around government overreach into privacy uh, th with Bitcoin that's not going to be available with CBDCs. Therefore, there is always a niche for Bitcoin to exploit, right? Bitcoin can be used more widely. And so <laughs> when you can use a currency more widely, it has a liquidity advantage and it exposes this limitation for, from the central planners. And so their coins, their money will lose relative to Bitcoin, which can access a more wide liquid market than the central planner coins. Okay. Restrictions would weigh on the global attractiveness of a CBDC. Introducing restrictions could help combat illicit payment flows and reduce the use of the CBDC in an, as an investment vehicle, especially for large value transactions. Restrictions are easier to implement if bank accounts are used to transact in digital currencies. Alternatively, limits to individual holdings could be introduced through direct quantitative restraints or constraints. In other words, by putting a ceiling on the amount of a CBDC that non-residents could use. Information would possibly need to be acquired and verified before confirming payment with the CBDC to enforce the limits. However, restricting the access of non-residents to the CBDC would reduce its convenience for cross-border payments. If it were 
not interoperable with foreign payment systems. This would affect remittances and would not be in line with the G20's objective to enhance cross-border payments. Limits on large value transfers should not apply only for individual transactions, but also for the value transacted over a certain period to prevent them being circumvented through the use of repeated smaller value transfers. So again, trade-offs. So they could, you know, they could do this or they could do that, but there would be a trade-off for its uh, appeal to non-residents and its use in cross-border payments and all these other things. So they're starting to get that there are trade-offs here. Continuing. The global appeal of a CBDC would likely depend on its remuneration. Remuneration can be used to incentivize or disincentivize use of the currency. Okay, so um, I don't have much to say on this. There, there's, I think what they're trying to say is on its remuneration. So it's benefit. So like reward for holding it or its appreciation. Like that's one reason why Bitcoin, people want to hold Bitcoin because number go up, right? So they need to make it global and they need to increase the global appeal by giving it some remuneration. They can't give it negative remuneration, which would be like inflation, Right, because that would disincentivize the use of a CBDC. Um, let me just read this part. A design choice that aims to incentivize users to use the CBDC as a means of payment and not as a form of investment that competes with other financial instruments would introduce a tiered remuneration system in which the remuneration rate on CBDC holdings in excess of a given threshold would be set at unattractive levels. So they're going to dial in negative interest rates on like your CBDC holdings over a certain threshold. Oh man. So they're tinkering with all of these things and trying to say, oh, but we can make it appealing to people, but they're just opening the door over and over again to these things that make it unattractive to people holding it. Okay. Let's go down to the next part. We're getting close to the end here, guys. So whether a CBDC would be designed as a bearer instrument or as an account-based instrument might also have an impact on the international attractiveness of the currency in which it is denominated. A bearer CBDC. Okay, so this is where they talk about a bearer instrument versus an account-based instrument. So Bitcoin is a bearer asset. That means you have it. You have the ownership of the asset and you can give it to somebody else. It's not held by a third party. That is what a bearer instrument is. But okay, so a bearer CBDC would reduce the need to use third party infrastructure such as internet providers in the case of offline use would be compatible with full anonymity and easy to scale. I have, I have an issue with that. So they it wouldn't be easy to scale. It's actually, if it's a bearer CBDC, that means that you're, it's not dependent on a third party, right? So it's third party resistant. It's censorship resistant. And if that is the case, then that entails a lot of other things like decentralization. And so it is not easy to scale. So when they say a bearer CBDC would reduce the need for third party infrastructure, no, it demands the reduction of third party infrastructure. And it would be compatible with anonymity, but not ease and not be easy to scale. So they're wrong on those things. These features could combine to increase the global attractiveness of the CBDC. 
and here in my notes, I just have that again, they think that these features are additive, right? They think that by, oh, we're going to tweak this feature and we're going to tweak that feature and we're going to make it a bearer CBDC and this is really cool. Let's add all the, what can we add? You know, all the, bring everything to the table. Let's see what we can throw in here. And that everything is additive when in reality it's trade-offs. Um, everything has a trade-off and that is the fatal conceit of the central planner is that they can tailor this to be really a great thing with all benefits. But in reality, they're going to make Frankenstein's monster of a currency, right? So let's see what they have to say about account-based account based CBDCs. By contrast, an account-based CBDC would make it easier to restrict access to non-residents who intend to use it for illicit payment flows. However, this might reduce its attractiveness to non-residents compared with a bearer CBDC if, for instance, it meant that there were no possibilities to make offline payments. I mean, at least they're thinking about this distinction, but they literally cannot create a bearer CBDC because that means that you, you lose the ability for the third party to manage anything, and that's not what they want. They can't design something like that. They literally cannot make a bearer CBDC. If they did, why not use Bitcoin? Right. Then you open it up to competition and people will dump it for Bitcoin. So again, it's monetary competition. It's convergence with trade-offs and they don't quite get it yet, but they're starting to get it, I think. Okay. So that's, that's it for this. There is a conclusion here. I'm not going to read it. Um, you guys can go check it out. Yeah. So there now you guys are <laughs> up to date on the current thinking by the the ecb on their digital euro that is it for this one guys thank you for joining me my name is ansel lindner this is bitcoin and markets this is a listener funded podcast to find out more go to bitcoinandmarkets.com uh, that is where you also find the show notes for this episode and while you're there subscribe to the free weekly newsletter uh, that is the best free weekly newsletter in Bitcoin called the Fundamentals Report. And check out the Discord. We're building a nice community over there with lots of simultaneous topics and rooms going at the same time. So BitcoinandMarkets.com and you'll find all of that information. Thanks for listening. See you next time.